Welcome to Shakespeare Alive, a podcast from the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Hello, welcome to Shakespeare Alive. My name's Angela and my guests for this episode are the hosts of Not Another Shakespeare podcast, James and Nora. So Nora is a lecturer in Shakespeare and early modern drama and literature at the University of Essex. Her first book, Canonical Misogyny, is currently under contract with Edinburgh University Press and her husband James is a chartered surveyor by day. Now Not Another Shakespeare podcast began during lockdown in winter 2020 and has now two full seasons. Now, in each episode, Nora introduces James to an early modern play, and he gets to respond often very, very amusingly, and they assure me that season three is on its way. James and Nora, what a pleasure to have you with us on Shakespeare Alive. Welcome to the show. Thank you so Thank you. much. Thanks for having yeah. us. It's, it really is a pleasure, and we always start our episodes by asking our guests, what your route to Shakespeare was. So, James, do you want to start with your route to Shakespeare? Mine is a lot more conventional, I'd say. Um, so I was taught Shakespeare at school, had a fairly kind of, I guess, neutral <laughs> opinion. I think probably just because of the age I was and the way that I kind of like to find things on my own rather than kind of be sort of taught things with marks uh, so um after that i sort of sporadically would have seen films or things or plays on tv for instance but it was really nora that really kind of brought shakespeare back to me <laughs> <laughs> so so nora um you obviously woke james up if you like to the joys of shakespeare <laughs> but what was your route to shakespeare then if if my ninth grade English teacher, Larry Desitels, listens to this, he will find it hilarious because I told him after taking English class with him and we read Julius Caesar, I said, I hate Shakespeare. I don't understand it. It's awful. I don't get it. I'm never doing any Shakespeare again. But I also was a theatre kid and my school in, in the States, it's very common for secondary schools to do a musical every year. My school didn't do a musical. They did a Shakespeare play. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get to do any theatre <laughs> this term if I don't audition for the Shakespeare. Um, and it was through performing it that I found that actually I could understand it. And I had a, um, yeah, developed a real kind of passion for it over my secondary school years and my university years. And when James and I met, I was doing a master's in staging Shakespeare. And now, obviously, you are, you're a lecturer, Nora. Yes. So you're at the yeah, University no. of Essex. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you, I can't get away from him now. <laughs> <laughs> and you focus on early modern theatre and indeed Shakespeare too, don't you? I do. Yes. Yes. So my um, my passion for Shakespeare, I would say, has cooled somewhat since I was 17 and had a pair of jeans with a hole in them that my parents wouldn't let me wear anymore. So I sharpied Shakespeare speeches all over them <laughs> and, and wore them. I didn't know about this. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you still no, possess I really these wish that I did. I really wish that I did. I don't know what happened to them. Um, somewhere in the last mumble mumble years, they uh, they disappeared. But um, yeah, that was that was the peak, I think, <laughs> of, of Shakespeare passion. Um, and then I think 
sort of towards the end of university, start of my master's, I was reading a lot more Jacobean tragedy and plays by other playwrights from the same period. And I found that actually those plays really excited me um, in ways that I, I didn't know it was possible to be excited. Um, and so my PhD was actually about the changeling, Thomas Middleton and William Riley. And I, I now, um, although of course Shakespeare is my bread and butter and he pays the bills mostly, um, I do kind of have a real yeah, a real desire to sort of introduce people to these other playwrights and to make sure. So one of my modules that I teach at Essex is a third year module called Representing Women in uh, on 17th century English stages. Um, and there's no Shakespeare at all on that module. It's all other playwrights and other sorts of performance, um, which I'm quite proud of. <laughs> Sure. And I mean, this focus on women that you have, is that that's part of your work as well, isn't it? Have you published on women too? Yes. So I'm um, I'm writing a book right now, which is under contract with Edinburgh University Press coming out hopefully in 2025, um, called Canonical Misogyny, um, Dramaturgies of Sexual Violence in Shakespeare and Early Modern Drama. So the, I actually just had an article published today, actually, out of the uh, out of the book project, which is exciting. Um, basically, arguing that misogyny is a systemic problem, not just in Shakespeare's time, but in our own time, and and indeed both before him and probably after us. Um, and so, if you want to think about misogyny in Shakespeare, you have to be thinking about dramaturgy because dramaturgy is the the word we use for the kind of systems of the play, if you like, the kind of structure of it, the way it's put together, the assumptions that it makes, um, the world that it creates. And so casting a woman as Petruchio, for example, doesn't doesn't quite do that dramaturgical work where you're sort of asking casting to do the work of dramaturgy when actually you need to get deeper into the play to really address that. And you mentioned that you wanted to to sort of be able to talk to people more meaningfully. And presumably, this gave birth to your idea of your podcast. So you started Not Another Shakespeare podcast in the lockdown. So tell us what the kind of thinking behind it was and where it came from. Well, I think I would sort of got into podcasts during lockdown, like a lot of people. And... <laughs> I'd been thinking I've because I'm a music producer in my kind of hobby spare time. Uh, and I thought I've got the skills to record and edit. It'd be fun to, to do a podcast. And I was sort of, you know, thinking of ideas, um, mostly kind of music related, but I didn't really have anything that I thought would stick out enough or anything that was really working. And then one day we were just talking and Nora was I was preparing a lecture, I think. Yeah. yeah, I was prepping a lecture on the Merry Wives of Windsor. And James is, is often my test audience <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for lecture subjects. Um, because I think if I can keep James interested, then I can I can surely keep undergrads <laughs> <laughs> interested. And he uh, he taught me something in that oh. in that exchange. He did, because the play is called The Merry Wives of Windsor, plural. And I sort of got to the end of explaining the the plot point that I needed him to understand to to understand this piece of the lecture, and he stopped me and he's like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait! There's only two wives." Yeah, and uh, he was he was really shocked to I find was out. Quite shocked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I believe you said Shakespeare's scrimping on the wives. Yeah, I was. I was expecting a bunch of wives. <laughs> he was expecting because because the title of the play is wives yeah. plural, multiple wives. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, like to be fair, by the end, it's three. But 
<laughs> still still low. No, not meeting James's minimal requirement. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it's one of those plays I'd like heard the name of, and in my head, not knowing anything about it, I just thought, oh, there'll be a lot of wives in that one. You'd think <laughs> that. You would think that from the title. Um, and I think I was I'm just so deep in Shakespeare that it, it had never occurred to me that the title was misleading. Um, <laughs> so I, I tweeted this thing that he had said, and within an hour, we had like a few hundred likes on it, which is more than I would normally see on one of my tweets. And I think it, I think it was you. I think it was James that said, "Oh, like we could do a Shakespeare podcast. That's sort mm-hmm. of, that's just this because we had we had been talking that whole hour and sort of joking yeah. about it, and um, we were sort of still still on topic." <laughs> with the very wives of Windsor yeah um and yeah we thought well why not we've got nothing else to do it's lockdown yeah and if you know even if we're just entertaining ourselves with this um it'd be something to do um and if people want to listen to it then then great and yeah we, we feel um shocked that <laughs> people don't actually <laughs> want to listen to it well, it, it is a wonderful podcast that you have, guys. And it's it's lovely because what happens is you, you kind of take your audience through a play at a time and usually in a couple of parts. And mm. you, you sort of tell the story, Nora, and then James, you kind of, you, you just, you react to it. And it's, it's one, it's just one, it's like a process of discovery. Just, I mean, not just for you, but also for your listeners. I mean, can I ask, are you genuinely ignorant about the plays? Are these, are these sincere reactions? Or do you know think, a little bit in yeah, advance? They are sincere. There's, there's one or two I know in advance. So Macbeth, I did at school and I, I think you're hard pressed to find people who don't know a little about it. Um, measure for measure, we, yeah, we've, we've seen, seen measure measure. a few, uh, the changeling I've seen, mm-hmm. but most of them, I don't know. Most of it, something like Cymbeline, no idea. <laughs> so Very few people do, James, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Even Shakespeare people. <laughs> Yeah. Has James's reaction ever really taken you by surprise? Yeah, uh, probably once an episode. At least. <laughs> <laughs> because I love this is one of the things that I've always, since I met James, have loved about James is that his brain is not always on a linear path, and and in a in a wonderful and creative and intelligent and and sometimes hilarious way. Um, but so when we did As You Like It, for example, we had you know, two whole, it was a double episode. Like we, we had been recording for, I think like three and a half hours or something of As You Like It. And we get to the end of As You Like It. And I, you know, I said to James like, oh, what was your favorite bit? And he just goes, I liked the wrestling. Which, <laughs> if you don't know As You Like It, is the very first thing that happens. <laughs> you, you haven't liked and the, any, and the lion. He likes the lion. He likes it. He likes animal characters. He likes the bear from The Winter's Tale. And he he has a real sympathy for characters who don't really get enough time in the sun. Um, and I've learned that if I skip over a minor character and James later finds out that I've left them out, <laughs> I get in trouble. There's always, if you have say to me, if you've got any questions at the end, I'll be like, Oh yeah. What happened to old Adam? Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. a very good question. In fact, <laughs> um, what does old Adam? We don't know. Well, quite. And actually, speaking of As You Like It, I remember you, you got quite fixated, James, on the character of Hyman. Yeah, yeah there's, there's usually, James also has a, a very um, inappropriate mind, shall we say. Um, 
as as many men of his age. And so, yeah, there's always, there's always like Hyman was a big one. Um, when we did Cymbeline, he thought love token meant like a, like a coupon for sex acts. Um, so, <laughs> so when they were exchanging love tokens, he, he really thought that they were like, promising each other sex at a later date <laughs> which I mean I guess like metaphorically they sort of are but that's that's not, not what it is <laughs> so have has there been anything James um in in this sort of process of discovering these plays that has taken you by surprise or something that you just weren't expecting at all I think Cymbeline in general <laughs> <laughs> and just how kind of crazy some of the plays are and things that happen uh, and I think certainly or even sometimes how rude they are I mean I'm I'm often dragging it into the gutter but but sometimes it's already there um and certainly you know growing up it's sort of taught us it's like it's the you know very civilized and elegant and it is certainly in terms of the language like the the construction but sometimes the subject matter of things is as crude as the things I'm bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. So just how naughty Shakespeare is. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, I think that's a fun thing to discover. And it's so important to, to just to send out there to audiences as a message, particularly if you're new to Shakespeare, that actually this stuff isn't frightening or highbrow at all. So you don't just talk about Shakespeare because you mentioned the changeling a few minutes ago. So... Mm-hmm. How do you decide what other plays you're going to talk about? Mm, that's a good question. Well, mm. I think The Changeling was on there because it was one I didn't really have to prep. I can Because I did my whole PhD on The Changeling, I spent four years living and breathing The Changeling. I can pretty much talk about that play in my sleep and probably have. Um, and so that one was a, an easy choice. And I think we felt like we wanted to sort of stick a flag in the ground in the first season and say, we're not just doing Shakespeare because if we just did Shakespeare, we would actually run out of place pretty quickly. So if we kind of expand it, then we've got more to do. Um, we wanted a Halloween episode for second season and we had already done Macbeth. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the witch of Edmonton was, was kind of my pitch for that. And I, I knew that James was just going to love a talking dog. I had actually seen that. You it's had, of, but you fell asleep. I mean, that's some of the things I know. I did fall asleep. Um, of the several plays that we've seen, but again, that's a fraction of all the plays that we're looking at. Yeah. But but again, that one had a vague idea. Yes. That there was a witch in Edmonton. And a dog. <laughs> So we like the talking dogs and we like the lions. Um, yes. And we've got our Halloween episodes. So I know I know that you have like sort of one-off, I guess sort of special episodes. And there's there's one, I think you've done a quiz one before, like you said, the, yeah. the Halloween one. Have you got a birthday one or am I just making that up? Oh, a Shakespeare birthday one. We, um, we haven't done a Shakespeare birthday one. Um, partly, I think, because that's also our wedding anniversary, <laughs> which was a total accident. We didn't. We did not plan for that to be the case. Yeah, people hear that and they're like, oh yeah, right, Shakespeare's birthday is your wedding. It's like, no, actually, we we genuinely just had to get married on that day because of our our visa circumstances. (laughs) Oh my good, that's a great story. (laughs) Have you got an episode that is, like, what's your all-time favourite? I like the Cymbeline episode. Yeah, Yeah. I like that one too. And I think The Witch of Edmonton is a good one, actually. Yeah. 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 
some of the the guest episodes are quite good as yeah. well. I think the the most recent one, um, which is two hours long, <laughs> on, long. on a chase made in Cheapside, but, Cheap side, but we had um, it's funny, and we had Brandy Adams on for that one, who is a um, a book historian and uh, has studied Latin extensively. So all the the Latin, there's a lot of Latin jokes in that play that certainly went over my head and and James's head, but Brandy was able to like she got them and so she could mm. explain them to us and so that was really really good <laughs> oh that's amazing I mean so yeah. they always say it's great if if you have to have a joke explained to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's, it's interesting with that one like I don't even because it was done in a it would have originally been staged in a in a public theater in an outdoor theater so I don't know how many people like even in the audience originally would have gotten those Latin jokes or or whether the joke was maybe just that like the the Latin is bad and you don't need to know any more than that. Um, it's like working on multiple levels. I don't know. But, so yeah. This meta comedy. What was it about Cymbeline in particular, James, that made you go, I really love this, this whole thing. I love this episode. I think the play itself is quite wacky and it was just quite a silly episode. <laughs> I don't, maybe I was in a particularly <laughs> you were silly mood. Really or, or... tired that day. I remember <laughs> so you're, you had pretty much no filter. <laughs> it was just yeah. That just was also was... the first play that I actually prepped anything for, though. Right. Because yeah. prior to that, I had we had been doing either plays that I knew really well because I was teaching them or I was writing about them. I was teaching Cymbeline at the time, but I remember thinking that I've got no hope with this if I don't have a plan. Mm. <laughs> because the plot is very convoluted and it's if I, I think I say this on the episode if you listen to it but the it's it's one of those plays where like things that seem like really minor details just become very important later on so I didn't want to lose track of anything and I didn't want to you know I didn't want to have to backtrack and like explain like oh this this is important because he's going to steal posthumous's clothes and and be like mm-hmm. it just it just seemed like I needed a plan and so yeah. I think because I had it planned out the the actual explaining of the story was much more streamlined, which left a lot more space for the, the fun. Yeah. <laughs> for the fun things. It's yeah. funny actually, because you Nora, you describe yourself as the less funny half of not another Shakespeare podcast. I mean, do you still think that's the case? I, I wouldn't say that's the case as, no, as a listener. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. But I do I really do think James is the draw of, of the podcast <laughs> because I could like you, you know things though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but I know boring things. I know like, you know, I can tell you the story of the play, but that's it would be so much less interesting if it wasn't for you sort of reacting like a normal human and talking about well, love. Not always like a normal human. <laughs> but without the, you know, without the stuff about the love tokens, so like your your real advocacy for the lion or to get his time on stage or you know, any like that's what really makes it, I think, is is your your reactions to stuff. Yeah, it, I guess it humanizes the these sort of pieces of literature that have become almost mm. static, haven't they, in the way that they're spoken yeah. about. And it's nice to to bring us a, a sort of levity to that conversation is wonderful. Mm. What do you hope your audiences take away from from the podcast? I think that, that Shakespeare can be fun. And that it, I think when we were sort of starting to do it, I think one of our aims was to try and make Shakespeare more accessible and like in a way that it's kind of like silly it's not you know we're not trying to do some sort of high high brow um I know you certainly could but <laughs> I'm dragging down in that that kind of just kind of have kind of fun with it and make it accessible to people who may 
not necessarily have um, a really kind of intense, like a pre-existing interest in, in mm-hmm. Shakespeare, I guess. Yeah, I think I think for me, and I say this to my students a lot, my my general approach to Shakespeare is that I think knowledge of Shakespeare and access to Shakespeare knowing about Shakespeare opens a lot of doors for you as a person in the world. So I want to to sort of give my students and to, you know, to give anyone who's listening to the podcast who maybe doesn't have that Shakespeare knowledge, that access, while also sort of uh, pillorying it at the same time and sort of saying like, we can, we can acknowledge that this is something that, that opens doors for you and helps you move through the world, but we don't have to accept that that the world is that way necessarily. And we can, we can kind of knock Shakespeare off the pedestal a little bit. And I hope from the, from the academics that listen to it, because we do have a fair few people who are themselves Shakespeare experts and Shakespeare enthusiasts who listen to it. I hope that they sort of have the experience that I have of listening to how James reacts to the plays and having to rethink their approach to them, having that moment of going, oh God, yeah, I am so deep in this that I hadn't noticed that Merry Wives of Windsor is a sort of misleading title. (laughs) why not play around with it? Why not have some fun with it? Why not sort of critique what it's doing culturally? Like, what does it mean when we take something that's 400 years old and we put it on stage without sort of changing anything about it? What is that doing in terms of activating the the prejudices of that time, the logic of that time, the thinking of that time? There's a, there's a way I think, and I'm, I'm arguing in my book <laughs> that, that that sort of limits our horizon in terms of what we imagine is acceptable or we imagine is possible in the present. And so I, I do think it's important to sort of be alive to those things and to not just take Shakespeare as, as, as sacred. If our listeners want to find out more about Not Another Shakespeare podcast, where do you suggest they go? We are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Yeah. And basically, yeah. All of them. <laughs> and where all of them, if you Google the title of the podcast, you will have many options before you. We don't have sort of concrete plans for season three yet, um, but we're sort of playing playing around with a few yeah. different ideas. Um, but there's, there'll be another bonus episode at some point in the summer to complete our audience requested Middleton mini season. So we had a chase made in Cheapside with Brandy and we're going to have Women Viewer Women coming out at some point this summer. You're also to be found on social media. You've got Twitter page and, and Instagram too. So our listeners can find you anywhere. And I do we're recommend that you listen. Yeah. <laughs> we're just going to pause for a quick break. We really appreciate your support for Shakespeare Alive and we'd love to hear from you about how you're enjoying our podcast. So please complete our survey by visiting shakespeare.org.uk forward slash future. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your usual podcast platform. Why not join the conversation on social media by using hashtag Shakespeare Alive? And we hope that you enjoy the rest of this episode. You're listening to Shakespeare Alive with me, Andna, and I'm talking to hosts of Not Another Shakespeare podcast, James and Nora. If you could direct anything, both of you, and your answers might be different, what would you choose to direct? Um, so I do direct, actually. Um, so my my background is in theatre, um, and so I I still I still do theatre. Um, and part of the book project is a practices research project with Measure for Measure. Um, so that's the one that I've been working on the most lately. I would love to direct some of those Jacobean tragedies. I, I would love to do a, a Changeling, a White Devil, um, a Tis Pity. One of one of those would be yeah, really juicy and fun. 
I don't know what I would do. <laughs> and your work on Measure for Measure, Nora, it sounds so fascinating. And I think mm-hmm. that it's there's so much to unpack and it aligns so neatly with the, you know, the subject in which you have a specific interest in, you know, yeah. I, I conceptualizations of misogyny. Yeah. But I just think it's such a complex, intricately constructed play. And it makes a hell of a lot more sense than Cymbeline. Yeah, that's true. It does. And it, I think it makes a lot more sense um, when you, I think there are a lot of directors who really are desperate for it to be a comedy in the modern sense of comedy. Um, when in fact, like the conception of genre in Shakespeare's period is is so different. You know, it doesn't have to be a laugh a minute kind of thing in order for it to be a comedy. It ends with weddings and not deaths and and therefore it's a comedy. So I think there's there are too few directors, I think, willing to sort of accept that nuance and and allow it to be really complex as a as a play and not sort of either try to make it a tragedy or try and make it this like raucous comedy um, and to actually sort of sit somewhere in the middle and and really allow it to uh, allow that the, the kind of complex ethics of it to sort of play out. I think that there's there isn't much of an appetite, is there, for things with the com- with with an ethical or moral complexity at, at their mm-hmm. heart? I think in 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 all genres of art at the moment, there's a real hesitance to to kind of explore grey areas across yeah. or any particular subject, let alone moral ones. And I think mm. I think measures a, a calculated difficulty in that respect. I mean, I think certainly mainstream theatre is not as willing to go there. Um, but my students really are. And I think that's, it's, they, you know, I, I love, um, our, our current cohort of third years, like shout out to them from drama at Essex. They're really excellent. We worked on measure for measures together recently. And I think they were trying to, it was an adaptation, um, that sort of allowed act five Isabella, if you will, to sort of retrace the, the story of the play and, and sort of reevaluate her decisions and think about, would she make the same choices again? And the ending was a real, we, we spent a lot of time discussing the ending and we ended up on something very ambiguous. Um, but there was a, there was a draft where um, she murdered the Duke and that desire for catharsis, I think was, was really strong. And then once they had sort of run that as a rehearsal, everybody was sort of like, okay, now what? <laughs> like, yeah, we've killed the Duke, but what what does that mean for Vienna? What does that mean for Isabella? What does that mean for justice? What and sort of you know it was like okay, um, this you know Augusto Boal, who's a um, theater practitioner and, and thinker from and among many other things from Brazil, he says that catharsis is coercive, right? That it's that 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 feeling of oh everything's okay now in theater and in Aristotelian dramaturgy particularly is coercive in the sense that it prevents you from actually taking the actions of revolution, right? It, it lets you leave the theater feeling that things have been resolved when in fact they have not. And the, I was really proud of these students because they were very willing to be like, okay, that felt good for a second, but what now? Oh, that's fascinating. Your students sound wonderful. They really <laughs> um, <are. laughs> and they're lucky, they're lucky that they have you to guide them through it as well, Nora, which yeah. is really exciting. Yeah. As you know, with the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, we have a large collection. We've got an archive, we've got a museum, we've got a library. Was there anything within our collections that stood out to you? Um, there was one I saw that I like to look at that was called uh, Time to Play, and it was about was it games and 
um, sports and things like that in well, Shakespeare's time. Were there any games in particular that you thought, oh, that's I like the sound of that? I think there was one called Hoop. I can't remember what it was called now. Hoop something. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write it down? I didn't write it down, foolishly. <laughs> How yeah, about you, Nora? Was there anything in the collection that stood out to you? I So, yeah, I have been lucky enough to spend some time in the archive and library um, in as part of my research. And I my favourite, favourite, favourite things are the costume drawings. They, I just like, I'm not a costume historian. I'm not a costume expert, but any time I get to sit with uh, costume drawings from different shows um, over periods of time, that's, that is one of my favorite things. Were you, were you able to look at some of those, the Middleton? Did we have anything Middleton? Yes, so you do. Um, so the, uh, there's a couple different productions of The Changeling. Um, and actually speaking of costumes, there's one from 1978, um, which I'm not going to remember the name of the director. Somebody famous. Um, and the there's a scene where um, Beatrice Joanna, who's sort of the the heroine of the story, is meeting with uh, Al Samiro, who's the guy that she wants to be marrying. And then shortly afterwards, she meets with De Flores, who she's sort of planning to conscript to kill the guy that she is supposed to be marrying. Um, the costume design for this piece, for this production from 1978, was a dress that exposed her breasts. Um, so she's got this sort of shawl thing that that does come off <laughs> over the course of the scene. And it just, I had to like, I had to read the um, the stage manager's notes like quite a few times <laughs> to be like, hang on a minute. It does what? <laughs> um, yeah, so it was a very, it, it's, yeah, very much part of the, the trend of interpreting that play at that point in time, which was to sort of hypersexualize her. Um, I think so as to avoid thinking of her as, as a victim of sexual violence, which she is. Um, and certainly I think now that would be the mainstream reading of that play. Um, but at the time, the seventies and eighties, particularly, there was a really strong strand in the scholarship that really just wanted it to be her fault somehow. Um, and so we're, yeah, she was really, um, really, really over-sexualized in a lot of productions around that time. Um, but yeah, that was probably the most surprising costume uh, note that I've <laughs> ever seen. Is there anything that you would want to bequeath to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust to tell mm. the story of Shakespeare in the 21st century to future generations? So I was thinking of the last time I was in Stratford-on-Avon, and we've we been there what, probably three two times, or three times. Yeah. Um, and there's always something that we walk past that always kind of catches my eye. And it's this large stuffed teddy bear in a rough and that kind of Shakespearean outfit, uh, life-size or even bigger. Bear-sized. Bear-sized. Uh, so uh, that, would be, that would be what I would pick. <laughs> Is there something about it that represents something of the now for you, James, that, that, that you think it kind of encompasses everything about Shakespeare in the 21st century? I think just the fact that it exists is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> that there is, a, 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 you know, a, a demand to have a large stuffed teddy bear Shakespeare. I know what you mean. So, it speaks a lot about the commercialization of Shakespeare as well, mm. and the fact that he has, and certainly in Stratford, become commodified in a way, and he's literally a tourist attraction. Yeah. And so, you know, within this bear, it's very cute and 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 cuddly, and has a ruff. Um, 
<laughs> and also has this sort of surreal attraction to people across mm. the world, um, representing something that was certainly once upon a time very highbrow. Um, mm. And I suppose it, it's quite, it, it is quite a sort of subversive object in and of itself. Before we go, do you have a favourite film adaptation of Shakespeare? So I really like... I really like a lot of them, but I really like um, Feng Shogong's adaptation of Hamlet, The Banquet, um, which is uh, very focused on Gertrude. Um, so predictably, I like the one that's about the woman. It kind of takes, it, it sort of mashes the Gertrude and Ophelia characters together a little bit and and focuses on her as this um, woman who is sort of clawing for power in order to survive in a in a very difficult set of circumstances. But of course, it, it comes back to sort of bite her at the end or it's some sometimes also in english under the name the black scorpion so you might you might find it either way well i don't know that one and i can't wait to watch it listeners let us know if you've seen it or or that you're going to look it out because that that sounds right up my alley how about you for you james what's your favorite um so i probably would have also said the banquet but um instead i'm going to go for for two answers one which is more highbrow one more lowbrow Uh, highbrow would be throne of blood uh, and the lowbrow answer would be lion king well, thank you both so much for being fantastic guests on Shakespeare Alive. It's been such a pleasure to have you. And we wish you all the very best with Not Another Shakespeare podcast. And I can't wait for series three. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shakespeare Alive. Please join Paul next week when he speaks to actress, director, teacher and scholar Lisa Volpe. If you'd like to find out more about the Houses, Collections, Research and Education Activity at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, then please head over to our website shakespeare.org.uk.